This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello, welcome to another of Deep State Radio's one-on-one conversations with experts. Today, we are very pleased to be joined by Fred Hochberg, former chairman of the United States Export-Import Bank, uh, and one of the really leading experts that we've got in this country on the issue of trade. Uh, Hi, Fred. How are you? Very good. Good to be here, David. Good good to have you. And, uh, you know... In the midst of all of the news that we've got going on, the Mueller investigation and the Khashoggi uh, incident and, uh, you know, relations with Russia and so on and so forth, one of the underlying themes of this election season uh, has been trade. And, uh, you know, as you look forward to the possibility that the Democrats might win the House of Representatives, uh, on a whole variety of issues, you think, well, this could produce a big change um, from Trump policies, which have been pretty isolationist, pretty anti-free trade, pretty um, pretty much um, consistent with a lot of the arguments people have been making against trade for some time. And yet, strangely, were the Democrats to take the House, you might well see... Um, an echo of the Trump views, because trade is one of the few issues in this country where the far right and the far left tend to be aligned uh, and where the old consensus, which existed in the center, has uh, faded. Um, and so, you know, as, as, as you look ahead, I mean, one of the things that's going to be up uh, for this Congress pretty quickly is how to respond to Trump's, you know, NAFTA 2.0. Um, but there will be other deals like that. And the question is, as you look ahead, is the prognosis for trade uh, under uh, a split Congress roughly the same as it was under a Republican-controlled Congress? Well, I think that, first of all, David, thank you for having me uh, join you today and uh, get a chance to talk a little bit about this. Um, First of all, I think trade is one of the most misunderstood items uh, on the political agenda. Uh, We tend to have an understanding of things like health care and national security and uh, and education. Um, But trade is probably right up there with infrastructure. No one even knows what infrastructure is. You know, in the old days, we called it public works. Now we have to call it infrastructure. I think on the trade agenda, I think what's what's going to be a real tell coming forward is the U.S.-Mexico-Canadian agreement. And of course, you see the word trade and the word free is 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 conspicuously absent from the new title uh, because those words have become toxic. Uh, but I think the thing that's going to be a dilemma for many people, I would say, particularly on the far left um, and labor, is the fact that this agreement puts in place more protections for labor, more requirements for higher um, wage rates for workers, $16 an hour for a a greater portion of the work that's done on automobiles. And I think it's going to challenge some of those who have been opposed to trade deals, say, does this go far enough? And uh, I think the challenge we always have is 
Um, nothing is perfect, and particularly in the legislative process. So the question is, does it go far enough to, gar to garner uh, enough support from both sides of the aisle? Now, up to now, by the way, the way the uh, President Trump's administration has been operating, they haven't really been looking for support on both sides of the aisle, whether it's the tax bill and other items through the uh, Trump agenda, they really have wanted it to be a one-party line vote and not really looking to find a way to bridge differences or find common ground. Um, trade is an area that I think uh, opens itself up to that. First of all, because geography has a lot to do with it. You know, Ohio is has a lot of blue-collar workers, a lot of uh, members of unions, and yet, um, so they have a very, they have a very geographic look at trade in terms of just the kind of manufacturing that happens in places like Ohio or Michigan or Pennsylvania. Um, so I think that's, we're going to have to look at how the USMCA doesn't really roll off your tongue like NAFTA, uh, how that's going to play out. I think that will be something we'll have to see. And lastly, I would just add, um, you know, the old consensus, um, as you mentioned, Democratic members tend to be have been much more anti-trade than I believe Democratic voters. Democratic voters, a lot of them are on both coasts. A lot of them are millennials. A lot of them are uh, immigrants. And that whole group tends to be more pro-trade, more global in its outlook. Um, and yet members, I think, are somewhat out of step with a number of their constituents. And on the Republican side, I think that Donald Trump has embodied how Republican voters feel about trade, which has been much more anti-trade, and yet Republican members up to now have been more free traders, more globalists. And I think that whole, um, we're reshuffling the deck on that entire, uh, uh, on how constituents and how members stack up on trade. Well, yeah, we, we reshuffle the deck, but we keep coming up with the same hand no matter who you've got. You know, I mean, Hillary Clinton ran during the campaign saying she was, you know, um, uh, you know, anti-trade on some uh, critical issues, including um, uh, some that she had been pro-trade on b before she ran. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and, and so as we look forward, you know, we've got... Do they ratify the NAFTA 2.0? Um, uh, uh, a deal? Do they uh, impose even more sanctions on China? What do we do if a trade war ratchets up with China? What do we do with the aluminum steel issues that are out there? What do we do um, uh, with regard to car imports to the United States if 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 the Europeans don't? Um, make some of the concessions that Trump wants. Uh, you know, it's it's quite possible that we could enter into the next two years and not get much done in the United States on a whole host of issues because of the split between the two houses of Congress that might exist uh, and the fact that the president might be a bit paralyzed. But on this set of issues, you 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 might be able to cobble together a majority in which the United States does a lot of damage to the trade legacy of the past 60 years. Does that worry you? Of course it does. You know, I, I think, you know, at one level, I mean, trade was never a front page news item. And only under President Trump and frankly, the 2016 election did all of a sudden trade become a, a front page and a political story, not just 
uh, somewhere in the weeds or on page, you know, 825. Uh, so I think that that is a large change. Uh, I'm not actually sure it's for the better, um, but it certainly is a change. And I think part of that is goes back to, I think there were just a lot of bad feelings uh, coming after NAFTA. People did get hurt. Um, communities were decimated or certainly uh, hampered in terms of the employment levels. Uh, Americans are moving less than they used to. And so I think that for many Americans, they only could see the negative aspects of trade and not any of the positive aspects, which is lower prices, uh, greater access to fruits and vegetables and, and agriculture products year round, um, greater variety, more innovation. Those things got taken for granted and people simply focused on some of the negative aspects, which tend to often be mirror congressional districts. So that makes that a much more difficult issue to address. It seems to me that one of the problems that we've had, and, and you know, you mentioned these problems go back to right after NAFTA. I was there um, in the Clinton administration, as you were, and I, I remember being part of this sort of NAFTA sales team. And we went out and we sort of said, rising tide lifts all boats, and uh, this is good for everybody, and this is not a zero-sum game, and so on and so forth. Um, and none of those arguments seem to work. And in fact, 25 years later, it seems like almost all the arguments that the pro-free trade community have made have been countered effectively by arguments that trade opponents have made, uh, and frankly, even more effectively by the anxiety of regular workers who have seen dislocation, who know that certain kinds of jobs are disappearing, um, and you know, I, I just wonder to what extent the 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 people who are arguing for for freer trade need to come up with a new um, argument, with new vocabulary, with new points that are oriented towards the new economy of the twenty first century, because we we've pretty much failed over the past 25 years in making that case. I agree entirely. I mean, first of all, if when you the more I've looked at it over the years, by eight years, starting the Obama administration, you know, trade, uh, most people you talk to, uh, what trade does is it, it increases innovation. You get products from overseas that are disruptive and change industries. You get lower prices because you have more competition. Um, and you create allies uh, with countries that you're now trading with. You know, we did not have the best relationship with Mexico before NAFTA. That got forgotten. But trade doesn't really create jobs, and yet it's often been promoted as a job creator. And so part of the problem is we were selling something that is not really clearly delivered by trade. So I don't think we were really straight and honest with the American public. And I think that we are now seeing the results of not being straight talking so now what well what, i think what's one the, thing, i think i think what we have to i mean in the trans-pacific partnership uh again the word free and trade were banished from that uh agreement that uh did not get enacted but the biggest supporters of the trans-pacific partnership was in fact the u.s military they said wait we need an agreement like that to shore up and to make sure that we have good relations in the Pacific region, the 
11 other countries plus the United States that were going to be involved in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And so if you're a consumer, you say, wait, why does the military care about a trade agreement? Because it's not just a trade agreement. It was an, it was an alliance. It had a lot of other things besides trade, besides the transport of goods freely moving over borders. So partly, I think we just have not been telling that when I say we, the political establishment has not really been telling the truth about trade for a long, long time. Um, so when, I mean, you make a good case with regard to security and you make a good case with regard to uh, more broadly, the foreign policy consequences, drawing nations closer together and having more common interests. And those all tend to be things that average people don't care about. Um, I, I, you know, I know it's conventional wisdom, but sometimes conventional wisdom is right. So what's the case you make when you're talking to a factory worker, you're talking to somebody in a Rust Belt city that's declined for the past couple of decades from its past glory and doesn't know where the future is? What, you know, what's, what's the best case you make for trade in, in the sense that, you know, I'm, we're looking for, you know, what, you know, what are candidates going to say? What, what, what would somebody say that would actually work? Well, let's remember, the reason we use the word trade because it's about imports and exports. And I think that frequently we don't talk enough about exports. I mean, I, you know, as you know, I was the chairman of the Export-Import Bank of the United States for eight years where we financed U.S. exports. We provided financing for exports when the conventional markets, and particularly in the aftermath of the financial crisis, could not get financing. So one thing I think that we have not done a great job of is really promoting exports, because I think if more workers, the workers you were just talking about, and certainly when I walked a lot of factory floors over the eight years, whether it be a large company like Caterpillar Locomotive or a small company, uh, Firm Green, a company in California, um, those workers that are realizing that a lot of the products that they're making or the services they provide are being exported, they tend to get a, a more positive view of trade. Part of the problem is a lot of companies don't take the time to educate their employees, to really talk to their employees about what where the sales are coming from and therefore where the jobs are coming from. So partly I have to tell you, I also fault CEOs for that. I think they need to engage their employees far more in the nature of the business so that employees have a better understanding of where did the sales come from and what drives our paychecks. What about one of the arguments that we always you know, went to in the uh, you know uh, Clinton administration, but I've heard people going back to it uh, in the year subsequent to that was, well, let's just set up programs to help people adjust. And there was you know trade adjustment assistance, um, and again, you know, it's one of those programs that wonks like to talk about, and then you say it to a real person, and their eyes glaze over. And, <laughs> Um, for good reason. <laughs> for for good reason, and then and then you go back to the wonk and you say, you know, does this actually make a difference? And his eyes glaze over, or her eyes glaze over, because it, you know, it was actually kind of bullshit. You know, it was it was not it it wasn't just helping anybody's life. It wasn't doing anything substantial. Should we, you know, it's part of the problem 
that we actually don't have the kind of social safety net that other countries have. You know, in Europe, everybody's got to believe in trade because all the economies are so small. And so most of those economies have pretty substantial safety nets. And when a company goes up in smoke, you know, I always like to give the example during the financial crisis, GM went up in smoke and we had to step in and bail them out in order to save a million jobs from disappearing because we didn't know what would happen to those people. But Saab went up in smoke and and the the Swiss the Swedish government said uh fine because they knew there was a safety net and people would be retrained uh and so they could handle dislocation uh in some ways better than we could um and you know i mean is that a, is that a good thing or does the, our lack of safety net force us to innovate, which makes us rebound quicker? I, I, I know you've thought about this, and I'm just wondering what your views are. Well, I think that the first of all, the problem with the social safety net is the first word. You know, Americans are allergic to the word social. It sounds like socialism. So uh, it's hard for Americans. Often they say, oh, retraining or unemployment insurance. Yeah, that's good. But then well, God forbid we call it a social safety net. Um, but I think. Well, that has made the politics around trade more razor sharp and less so in Europe. Partly, you're right. There is a social safety net in Europe. And I think the other thing is in Europe, you know, trading between Sweden and Denmark or Sweden and Germany, workers understand that we they need goods and services to go back and forth. And that creates jobs on both sides of the border. Um, it's not quite the same as Pennsylvania selling to Ohio, but it's not quite it's it's. So there are nuances, differences there. But um, so first of all, I think the trade is not seen as as much as an enemy um, or as disdainfully as it is uh, in the United States. Labor is far more pro-trade in Europe than they have been in the U.S. And I think the social safety that's part of it and the fact is those economies are much more interdependent. I don't want to put you on the spot because I don't know the answer to this question. You may not know the answer to this question. But are there generational issues here? I mean, do you think that millennials are emerging with different views on this? I mean, I know that sort of older workers who are used to a different America cast everything in the context of what they once dealt with. But the question is, what about younger workers who are uh, expecting a more global, more um, IT driven, less manufacturing driven world. Do they have different expectations? Uh, from what I have seen, younger workers and uh, so there's a generational divide and there's a gender divide. Um, younger workers, I think, are not banking on getting 20 or 30 years with one company and getting a pension. So I think that they understand that far better than workers, say, 40, 50 plus. Uh, women have also been far more adaptable to making adjustments in in their source of income, in the professions they've been doing. Um, so I think that they have actually been more open to changing careers and changing jobs. The other real thing we have to do is we have to get we have to get rid of this idea that you get educated for the first 20, 22 years of your life, and that's the end of education and training. You know, we have to all be continually open to learning new skills, learning new ways of doing things. And that's how we keep relevant in the in the job market. Otherwise, at some point, all of our skills are going to stagnate and you're not going to be no one will be able to keep up. So part of we have to really debunk that whole idea. The idea of commencement should be you're going to commence. It's not the conclusion of education. You're commencing your life and you're going to have to continue your education. 
even even now when you get old like us even even at our age and, and i have to say I, I i will be a little controversial um uh this is i think a, really a bigger problem amongst white men who and it may have to do at all levels of white men who have a sense of privilege like why should i have to change and adjust this has worked perfectly fine for 20 or 30 years why do i have to change that's less so uh we've seen in examples when the steel mill closes um or amongst people of color, it's been less so with women, less so with younger workers. So I think that there is a gender difference, uh, a generational difference, and a race difference that's a, a factor here. Yeah, but and also an ethnic difference, because I, as yes. an older Jewish white male, don't believe that I deserve anything good in life. And so any disruption... Your mother taught you well. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, anything bad that happens to me is what I expect. Um, <laughs> Fred... Uh, this has been great. It's an interesting discussion. I hope we can continue it because as a former trade official, I find these issues aren't getting discussed. But the thing that is even more frustrating to me is that when they are discussed, it's the same old words, the same old discussions, the same old people. And so much has changed that it's time for a new discussion on trade. So maybe maybe we can have a continuing series of conversations on what a new discussion on trade would look like. Maybe we can even invite some other people in on it. Well, that would be great. And David, just to close, I think you're absolutely right. We still are thinking of trade in terms of like material goods crossing the border. We're not focused on digital. We're not focused on things like entertainment. There are a lot of things that are about trade that aren't even ever, people don't even realize is a tradable good. Right. I mean, I stood in front of a group of people at a, at a, at a CEO event the other day, and I was talking about how 3D manufacturing changes trade. You know, the idea that you know, you would manufacture a product, you know, right up in the sort of in the in even in the home of the consumer and and all that would be traded would be electrons uh, and their eyes glazed over. They had no idea what I was talking about. So when I started to move into how blockchain could impact how we viewed rules of origin, um, I thought they were all going to slump onto the floor uh, and. It may have been my speaking style. No, of course. David, if you're speaking, people on the edge of this seat. <laughs> Usually, you're right, and they were going to slide right off onto the floor. <laughs> but, but that, in any event, the point is, I think there are a lot of next generation issues, and that requires a lot of new thinking. Um, and I would hope it would happen between now and 2020, so we might actually have possibility of a candidate running against Trump who's not just saying he's bad or I agree with him on this, but might be saying something like, here's an alternative. Here's how we compete in the 21st century. So I agree. Totally. All well, right. David, thank you for having me on. And thanks for uh, starting this conversation. Thanks. Well, we'll have you back again soon, uh, folks. That's Fred Hochberg, former chairman of Exim Bank. And uh, this is one of Deep State Radio's one-on-one -on -one conversations. Uh, we hope you will tune in. Uh, we do several of these a week. Uh, we've got a couple of new ones coming up this week. And that you will go to deepstateradionetwork.com and sign up. Because when you go there and you sign up and you you know offer a few bucks and you get a mug and you get the daily briefs that we send out. You also help support us uh, as an organization and help support our growth. So go there. Uh, there'll be more like this and in fact, more of this with Fred. Bye-bye uh, for now. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. 
Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.